Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome back for another episode episode of All Things Investigations, continuing my conversation with Kevin Carroll about the indictments, plural, of former President Donald Trump. We're recording this today. The D.C. Court of Appeals issued its decision on the immunity doctrine claims by President Trump, or excuse me, former President Trump. Welcome back, Kevin. Tom, thanks so much for having me. Kevin, I have to say, I think we had a pretty good day for democracy today. What were your initial thoughts? I agree. I I think that was an opinion worth waiting for. Like uh, a lot of people, I think I was getting a little bit antsy about what the holdup might be. But I was very pleased to see that it was a unanimous opinion. I think that's good for the court and good for the country. And I I think it dealt in a really comprehensive way with the issues at stake. And also it was written in a way that I think will be understandable to educated laymen who don't happen to be lawyers. And I think that's important in a case as consequential as this. Great summary, Kevin. I would only add it was per curiam. And when I told someone today how, why I thought that was significant, they were not a lawyer. And they said, what does per curiam mean? So for our audience who may not know, what does per curiam mean? Per curiam means that no one judge signed it. All, All three judges signed it, joining the opinion altogether. And really not distinguishing it even by authorship as being their own opinion, but the settled opinion of all three judges. And so it's impossible to say, reference something you don't like in the opinion. This is just a particular view of a circuit judge pan or something like that. No, it's all three of them. And I think in retrospect, this is why it took a little bit longer than some people wished for the opinion to come out. So that all three judges, two Democratic appointees, one Republican appointee, could agree about every jot and tittle in this thing. And Kevin, actually, I thought that was more significant than the unanimity because a unanimous opinion can be a single author with two judges agreeing. But here we actually had three judges probably writing all parts of the opinion, but assigning it as one. So to me, that strengthened the nature of the opinion. It strengthened it in front of their colleagues on the D.C. Circuit, and I hope it strengthens it before the Supreme Court as well. I agree. It's significant. So let's maybe geek out a little bit on some of the opinion because you're right. It is literally from the start founding, pre-founding of our country through Marbury versus Madison, through President Nixon, literally up to today. Do you want to just start where they talked about the jurisdiction or move directly into the Marbury versus Madison discussion? I thought the jurisdictional issues were interesting. It's such a narrow set of circumstances that can be brought up in a criminal trial on interlocutory appeal that they had to make it it really clear why they could be hearing this case at all at this point. It's the collateral order doctrine. And here, 
the theory would be that if uh, former President Trump was indeed uh, immune from uh, criminal prosecution, that among the harms he would suffer would be the experience of trial himself, being off the campaign trail, uh, paying legal fees, assuming he ever pays them, uh, and so forth. Um, so they had to deal with that that right away, and I, and I think they did in a in, in a very clear manner. Then we move to the doctrine around the uh, separation of powers, and I thought this was just a, a very insightful uh, section. They started by saying, quote, our analysis is guided by the Constitution, federal statutes, and history, as well as concerns of public policy, and I thought that was as spot on a sentence as anywhere in this uh, opinion, but they just completely eviscerated the defendant's argument because of it would completely have obliterated the separation of powers. What in that section really struck you as significant? Well, as you said, I thought it was wise the way they set it up. There's not really a, a right way or a wrong way of constitutional analysis. There, there are different ways that I think depend upon your, your political values. Some people are more interested in the text. Some people are more interested in what they perceive as the original intent. Other people are more interested in the public policy outcomes. And here you had, again, two Democratic appointees and Republican appointee agreeing, agreeing that no matter which lens you looked at it through, they were going to reach the, the same outcome here. And I like the fact that they went all the way back to, to Marbury. And I think if I can quote it, they had a very good sort of two-line summary of the holding of the case, which I, I think was nice. It says, former President Trump misreads Marbury and its progeny. Properly understood, the separation of powers doctrine may immunize lawful discretionary acts, but does not bar the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for every official act. And they cabined this pretty carefully. There's a little footnote, which I think is meaningful, where they said that nothing in this opinion has to do with prosecuting a sitting president. And nothing in this opinion has to do with a state law prosecution of a former president. But I think they set forth a really good explanation of why a president shouldn't be immune for every official act from criminal prosecution. I think that they made a very good decision in heavily emphasizing the concurring opinion of Justice Robert Jackson in the, the Youngstown Sheet and Tube case. Because I, I think the contrast between what President Truman did there and what President Trump is accused of doing on January 6th it, is really remarkable. In, in Youngstown Sheet and Tomb, the, the, the steelworkers were on strike. The Korean War was, was going on. The, our troops at the front were facing an ammunition shortage. And in extremis, even though he was a, a Democrat and a supporter of, of labor, organized labor, President Truman uh, seized the steel mills. And those are, I think, some very sympathetic circumstances for the, the commander in chief. But what the court found, and it was a concurring opinion by Jackson that, that really explained it, was that even that was beyond the power of the presidency, absent statutory authority to do so. here, as, as the court, the Trump court, shall we call it, pointed out, the president was at the lowest ebb of his authority. He, he's not just acting without statutory authority. But he's accused, credibly, uh, of acting against several criminal statutes. I, I thought that threw into, into pretty sharp relief um, the separation of powers issue. And the, I really honed in on the court's discussion that if he accepted the president's argument of really no review, 
you would disassociate the three branches of government from the ability to even do their jobs. So courts always have the not simply the ability but the mandate uh, to review civil and criminal statutes. Congress has the right under the impeachment clause to uh, consider uh, other factors uh, as well. Under the former president's analysis, it would have elevated the presidency to a level that uh, could not have been reviewed by anyone else. So I thought that was a significant political point to make as well. Absolutely. And, and the court still made clear that some things would fall within the, the political questions doctrine. The Supreme Court is never going to opine on whether or not the United States should go to war or whether or not the United States should have friendly or unfriendly relations with a foreign country. But yeah, the idea that the courts wouldn't be able to speak on whether or not the executive has or has not complied with the statute, it would have it just completely destroyed this, the system of separation of powers that we have. Next was a section on former President Trump, what the Court of Appeals called categorical immunity defense. And we talked about this claim in a prior podcast where we looked at the uh, oral arguments. And I thought not only was the opinion in this section or the language in this section well-reasoned, but they explained that a president was never fully immune. There are certain immunities, certain, certainly civil immunity during the time of the president and to the outer limits in civil immunity, but that lim- those outer limits don't exist around criminal acts. Uh, what was your take on this section? They did, because uh, you know, some people are unfamiliar with the, the historical record. Thomas Jefferson, as a sitting president, gave testimony uh, at the impeachment and, and treason uh, trial of Aaron Burr. Former President Reagan gave testimony about at the criminal trials of some of his former staff over the Iran-Contra uh, hearing. Former President Nixon gave testimony in the criminal trials of former FBI officials who were involved in illegal conduct. So the there's just plenty of precedent for former presidents and even sitting presidents having to take part in, in criminal proceedings. We know because of the Clinton v. Jones case that a president can be, during his term in office, held civilly liable for things that he did before he became president. There just wasn't really a good basis for them to claim, even though we're in an unprecedented situation here of a president being indicted that by a federal grand jury that there was some absolute immunity. The court also made clear that the terms of both the president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th of January, and the terms of their successors begin, and that's the expiration of time for which he is elected. And then a former president, and this is one of my favorite phrases, quote, returns to the mass of the people again. I guess we are one with former President Trump in that arena as one of the mass of the people. But the court made clear that there was no justification for immunizing former presidents for specific, some of the specific charges as laid out in the indictment. One of the things that would worry me if I was Trump's defense counsel, and listen, we're not sure if any appeals of any conviction are are going to be heard by the same panel, but they took away one of his best possible arguments, I think, defense arguments. One of the arguments that former President Trump could make was that he was actually trying to exercise um, his duties under the take care clause. And if you were a a defense lawyer who had a little bit more rope than um, President Trump has afforded his defense counsel, you could say, listen, the the president was absolutely wrong. Joseph Biden won the presidency and the president might be getting on in years and, and, and might even have some mental problems. 
but he sincerely thought that the election was stolen. And all he was trying to do there was take care that the election laws were, were duly executed. And I noticed that the court went out of their way to reject that. They, they said earlier in the opinion, we're gonna, not going to discuss about um, any of the, the, the factual, whether or not it's been factually proven, any of the things below. But then they went out of their way to say that there would not be a take care clause argument. That would worry if I were defense counsel. Because on, on at least two of the four charges here, it's hard to see many good defenses. The, the con- an official proceeding of the Congress was interrupted. <laughs> the Congress was, ch- was chased off the floor. They did it to try to prevent the Congress from doing something that's mandated on January 6th under the Constitution. And I think you can make interesting arguments, and some of which are on appeal of some of the other January 6th defendants, about whether the fraud statute applies. You can make interesting arguments about whether there was a, a conspiracy against voters' rights. Again, perhaps if you had this take care clause. Um, but I don't see a lot of ways to say that a proceeding of the Congress and an act of the Congress weren't obstructed and that the president and his speech on January 6th and his activity between Election Day and January 6th didn't have a whole lot to do with that. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Someone this morning asked a similar question or asked a similar type question to me around those issues, which was along the lines of, this seems like a fact-finding. And if it's a fact-finding, what precedential weight is it given? Does it, is it precedent? Is it precedent in this circuit? Is it of some interest to the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court argument in the Colorado case? Could it be used as a finding in other cases to which I had to say, I think it's precedent in the D.C. Circuit. But I think that's as far as it goes. But it's certainly of some interest to other courts. It sure is. And going, going back to your earlier point, the fact that it was done per curiam gives it additional heft. And the fact that this was not just written over, you know, after the oral argument. I, I, I think um, judges at a number of levels and a number of jurisdictions are going to pay careful attention to this opinion. Kevin, next came a lengthy discussion on what I'm going to group together as two. One, the impeachment defense argument. And then second, not perhaps double jeopardy claims, but double jeopardy principles as the court characterized them. What did you see in those arenas? I was very happy selfishly about one thing that we had discussed on a previous podcast. Um, During the, in the briefs, which I read and in the oral argument, which I read, I don't believe anybody made reference to the resolution of Bill Clinton's special counsel case. And the opinion did. Bill Clinton, in the last hours in office, reached an agreement with the special counsel for Whitewater that in return for not facing criminal liability for perjury in front of the grand jury and in the Paul Jones case, that he would pay a small fine and relinquish his law license for five years. And I always thought that showed conclusively that it was possible that President Clinton could have been prosecuted by the special counsel after he left office. Probably wouldn't have been a very good idea, but it was at least a possibility. And Bill Clinton, who's a Yale Law School graduate, thought it was worth reaching that deal in the final hours uh, of his presidency to avoid that possibility. And I always thought, along with the obvious uh, example, which everybody discussed, of President Ford's pardon of former President Nixon, that indicated that presidents in the past thought that they might indeed be held criminally liable for conduct that they committed in office. I was very happy to see that in it. And and as to the double jeopardy clause, they brought up, the judges brought up something that I hadn't thought of before, which is that 
it, it's not an exact correlative because you sometimes the things that are being considered or could be considered in an impeachment proceeding don't overlap exactly with the criminal law, right? It, it says to high crimes and misdemeanors such as treason and bribery. We see right now, as we speak, that Congress is considering impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas essentially for being derelict in his duties as, as the Homeland Secretary. That's not a federal criminal statute, but it looks like they're going to go ahead and, and impeach him anyway. And I, I think that w w was a very uh, thoughtful and perceptive point of the judges, that it can't be double jeopardy if there's not an exact similitude uh, between the things you can be impeached for and the things you can be prosecuted for under Title 18. So the uh, final section was, I believe, the Article 2 in enforcement of laws and after the uh, impeachment and the double jeopardy. And this brought it all together and told us that the former president's concerns, both legal and political concerns, were not enough to provide that immunity. And Kevin, I wanted to, to maybe in this podcast, there were so many good or important lines to ask you, a couple of lines that really struck you, and I'll certainly do the same, and it may be that they're the same lines. The one I already, I already shot my ammo on. I thought the, they did a very nice job of explaining what Marbury means in this circumstance. The line that I think is going to go in Bartlett's quotations, so to speak, from this opinion is, at bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. That's, that's the entire case in a, in a nutshell. And it, it, it's, it's not often that you get an appellate court to ex, uh, explain its holding as clearly as that. Because I, I think that's exactly what it is. It's, it, it's uh, what President Trump, President, former President Trump's counsel was doing, was asking the court to anoint the president as being superior to the courts and the Congress. And, and that just goes entirely against the agreements that were reached at the Constitutional Convention in 1788 and entirely against one of the main reasons we rebelled against the British in 1776. And I also had noted that line. And the other one I wrote down was, quote, un, an unprecedented, the allegations, if proven, would be an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. And I think that's where one or, one or more of these criminal trials may find ourselves. Kevin, there was an interesting language in the sort of cover letter announcing the decision where the Court of Appeals gave the defendant seven days to file an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, otherwise, the mandate would return to the district court. Uh, can you explain what the return of the mandate might mean and then the process by which the Supreme Court uh, may consider this case. It's interesting how they dealt with the mandate issue, because when the uh, opinion was not forthcoming, some people speculated that it was because there was a disagreement over the mandate issue as to whether the case would be returned immediately to the district court. And, and here, it, I guess this was maybe a compromise between the judges. The president has several days in which to put in appeal papers if he wants this to be reviewed on bonk by the entire D.C. Circuit. And of course, he has the opportunity to seek certiorari from the Supreme Court as well. <clears throat> I think what they're trying to do is, within reason, <clears throat> keep this trial on track for being resolved before the election. And I, I think that's reasonable. Some people have criticized 
the judges in some of these different cases for paying attention to the uh, electoral calendar. I, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I think whether or not former President Trump is a felon who, who tried to you know, overturn the results of an election is a pretty important fact to establish legally before people go to the polls. And I, I think without putting their thumb on the scale as to how things turn out, I, I think the, the the circuit panel here is making sure that that can at least be adjudicated in a reasonable amount of time before the election. Well, Kevin, I wanted to thank you for knocking out your afternoon with this case. It was a really interesting opinion, obviously one, one of the most important pieces of uh, judicial opinion that certainly we've seen in our lifetime. It's going to be very interesting to see what the Supreme Court does or does not do with this. They need to get four votes to take certiorari on it. I think that because the opinion was written so well, because it was unanimous, because it was procurium, because they dealt with the mandate issue in a reasonable fashion by, by, by giving former President Trump some time to put in appeal papers, I think the better part of valor for the Supreme Court would be to, to not take uh, re- review of this case, uh, to let it stand and, and to let the trial commence. I would certainly hope that might be the result, but I guess my con- only concern would be an issue of this significance and this import to our country do we want to have the top court opine on it? And sometimes I think it's important to have the top dogs give their opinion so that hopefully it will end the discussion. But you may be right. Sometimes the better part of valor is exactly what you suggest. It's absolutely fascinating. And it's almost certainly going to be one of the most important decisions, along with the 14th Amendment case, uh, which is going to be argued later this week. That's going to come up during the chief justice of John Roberts. And he's an extremely intelligent, educated, experienced man of great judgment and moral character. And I trust he'll reach the right decision. Kevin, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Me too, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning All Things Investigations. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. All Things Investigation is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.